Hello, you radical human. Today, I spoke to Marshall Seedoff, the VP of Sales at Force of Nature Meats, a brand that we love here at Radical Health Radio, but a conservationist and hunter. And the conversation largely centered around hunting, the history of hunting, why hunting is so important for us to reconnect back to our food, some of the lessons and the crazy stories from hunting. You want to tune into this one because you want to hear Marshall's story about the elk hunt that turned into the accidental burr hunt. It's one of the craziest, coolest stories I've ever heard. His passion for hunting and his history of hunting knowledge and conservation is really inspiring. And I'm fired up to get into hunting because of this conversation and share it with you. So let's tune into the show. Marshall, I've heard you say that hunters have a marketing problem. What do you mean by that? I think the image of what's conjured to the average person when they think about an American hunter is a fat white guy sitting in a deer blind, drinking beer, not having a whole lot of respect for animals or habitat and just going out there and trying to kill something to put on his wall and, you know, flex his muscles and, you know, a sign of machismo, right? Mm. Like something that people, he can brag about this big accomplishment mm-hmm. that he's so-called accomplished. And I think while there are those people in the pastime, in the sport, the the people that I gravitate to, and I'd say in my experience of a lifetime of hunting, the majority of hunters do not fit that description. Yeah. And I think it just, you know, naturally when you're spending that much time in nature, you're observing wildlife, you're seeing how it interacts with the world, with you, your connection to it, it becoming food. You just develop an intimate relationship and an intimate respect. And even if that's where you started, right? That's how you were introduced to it. I think a lot of people go through a journey over the lifetime of hunting of getting to a place where they're they're more connected to not than not and more passionate about the conservation of it than not. Than, mm-hmm. than the average person. I think that's not put out to the world at all. Yeah. You know, I think I think people don't even want to tolerate it, right? Mm-hmm. At this point in our culture, they just the idea that meat is bad, that killing things is bad, that it's unnecessary for our life as humans is so well adopted mm-hmm. and so well marketed that it's so easy to villainize hunters as like the extremist of meat mm-hmm. consumption, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it's so true, man. And I, I definitely feel like those are true because before I had a more nuanced view of be, through meeting hunters, I haven't started my hunting journey yet. It's actually a question I want to ask you today about getting started because I'm really drawn to it. But that was my previous conception of it, almost exactly like you said. It's kind of this just lazy, average, you know, white dude in the middle of nowhere with a high-powered rifle who's trying to just put a head on its wall. And a lot of time, they don't even want the meat. They don't even care about the meat. But I think the more I've entered into this world, had conversations with people like yourself, I think there is, yeah, a real gravitation towards understanding the laws of nature, feeling that you're connected to it, honoring, respecting, and actually seeing that hunting not only requires that reverence, some respect if you're going to do it for the long haul, but a lot of skill. So a lot of misconceptions you just threw on the table and we're wholly on board with those, you know, meat is bad, it's bad for the planet, hunters are horrible, how, how dare you go into these poor defenseless creatures land with weapons and, you know, uh, you just abuse them and take the power over them and then you, you do this weird thing where you pose with dead animals, you see it on these um, Instagram accounts and things like that. How do you reconcile that when someone is coming at you and saying like, you know, why would you do that? What 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 has your journey been like connecting to hunting and what it's afforded you in terms of your connection to food and the skills acquired to do it in a respectful way? Yeah. Well, I think to to get into what you were talking about to set that up, like the hunting community is just kind of newly trying to figure out how this thing that used to be very private is now very public with social media. Yes. And mm-hmm. so the the pictures that you're talking about used to be something that would be shared among hunters in a hunting forum or a hunting store, you know, posted on what would have been called like a brag board, right? Mm -hmm. That would have really only been ever seen by hunters. And so you're bragging to your buddies. It's like they get why you're smiling next to a dead deer because they understand how hard that probably was and how long you dreamed about accomplishing that goal that you set out and what went into that to get that picture, right? Now with social media, all people see is the picture mm. and there's no room for the story and, and all that led up to it, all the hard work, all the, you know, learning the skills and all of that. And mm. you have to have that perspective to understand the picture. Mm-hmm. And when I take, talk to people about hunting, you know, I talk about the nuance and, and being connected to nature, but I also, I think where I start is food, right? And I think, 
you know, venison diplomacy is is kind of a term I didn't make up, but I've heard I've heard it thrown around, you know, the hunting community, and it's something I've adopted. Where, you know, if I meet somebody, like you know, I just moved halfway across the country, and I've got new neighbors, some who are very supportive of hunting, and some who are not. And uh, the first thing I did when I met all of them, regardless of how they feel felt about hunting, was you know, hey, I, you know, I've got a freezer full of meat. We just met. I love sharing my food with nice. people. Would you like some elk meat? And uh, I even was able to talk in one of our neighbors who doesn't eat a lot of meat into taking some elk meat. And I gave her a recipe mm. to, to cook it up. And she finally called me a month later and said she did. And she was so excited to tell me that she actually, actually liked it. Mm. And that opened the door for the conversation of like, because I'm going to be hunting on the property I, I bought that is right next to hers. And so I want her to understand kind of working backwards why I'm doing that. Yeah. And what was her reason for not eating a lot of meat? Was it like morally conflicted in the way that you were able to present it to her, kind of squared that circle a little bit? I think morally conflicted. I think in her situation, she, you know, splits time and lives, you know, in a very rural setting for part of the year and a very urban setting most of the year and was raised in the urban setting. And so food always came from the grocery store and death was never a part of acquiring food for her. And so the idea that there was a connection there just didn't, it didn't ever exist in her mind. And making that connection was the first step to having that conversation. Mm. That's the, uh, that, I guess that's the uncomfortable element in, in, in the room that people don't want to talk about, that life requires death somewhat. And what's always most interesting to me in people's reaction to hunting is not necessarily the angry militant vegan. They're going to be angry about your choice to eat meat anyway, and probably more angry at the fact that you kill this poor defenseless animal. But the people that eat meat but are really triggered by hunting, because that highlights the almost like hypocrisy and disconnection from food, like uh, like no other. They just pick it up from the supermarket. They kind of are willing to turn a blind eye that, that these animals were alive at one point and they were killed and potentially, and I'm sure you'd make this argument, that the most humane, that the healthiest way and the most natural way is a hunting-based model of trying to feed your family most of that instead of most of what comes from the grocery store. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I agree with that for sure. And I think there's like two viewpoints that kind of separate themselves pretty quickly when I'm talking to someone that doesn't agree with hunting. The first is that, you know, a true vegan, right? And when I talk to those people, it's like agree to disagree on, on our place in the world as humans, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. On how we interact with the world around us and talk to them more about like footprint of supply chain, right? You know, the footprint of your vegetables and your fruit and your carbohydrates also has an impact on animals and wildlife. Mm -hmm. You know, I go that route with those folks. For the folks that eat meat and have a problem with, with hunting, then you, the kind of the second conversation that you mentioned, you start to dig in there, mm -hmm. right? Like, let's talk about that. You yeah. Know? If you're eating meat from the grocery store, that animal was, you know, if it's a conventional beef cow, for instance, it lived the last months of its life eating out of a trough you know, in very confined space and just not, didn't have access to the things that, you know, nature intended animals to have access to like, you know, clean water, open pasture, freedom to move around, interact with the world around it, see other animals, you know, all of these sentient emotions, you know, are kind of taken away from it and deprived of, you know, a lot of life, mm -hmm. right? And so is that a better system or harvesting an animal that's living out its God intended purpose, you know, in its native habitat, likely with members of its species, maybe even family members close by, you know, interacting with the world around it, trying day in and day out to survive because that is what, what nature is, right? That's their number one goal every day is to survive and thrive and mm -hmm. reproduce, but they're doing it the way they were intended to do. And when you hunt them, ideally you're taking them from that very quickly. Mm. Or that transition, there, there is no in-between, right? They're going from nature to food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess you could very fairly ask the question, which is the more humane, which is the less cruel, and potentially as well, which is the healthiest animal? Like you said, if that animal's managed to survive for that many years, it's, it's, it's pretty wise, it's healthy, it's not eating the feedlot, God knows, sprayed with, you know, this not fit for human consumption waste product and confined to a feedlot. And I think that's a very important distinction you've got to make here. Another, 
I'm curious about how you hunt. Is it is it rifle? Is it bow? Is it a mix of things? What do you hunt? Because we kind of glossed over that, but I know I've seen your Instagram feed. There is a lot going on there. So tell me the story about like, where did this all start? Do you remember your first hunting experience and what's it evolved into in terms of your style and where you go to hunt and what you hunt? Absolutely. So I think most people get into hunting because their dad or grandpa taught them to hunt. My, my dad didn't really hunt too much. Um, and I grew up in a, a pretty suburban setting in outside of Atlanta, Georgia, had a great childhood, but just, you know, at an early age, wasn't exposed to hunting. I was outside a lot doing kid things mm -hmm. and playing outside, but not, not hunting per se, but my uncle living in California was a huge hunter. He's a huge, I'd call him bird nerd, mm -hmm. just loves animals. And he's a huge waterfowl hunter. Mm -hmm. Um, and so my first introduction to it was really through him and he was very intentional about it. Um, his kids are a lot younger than I was. So I was kind of the first boy in the family of age to start hunting. And mm -hmm. so on, I went out to visit him when I was, you know, middle school, maybe sixth grade or something. And he invited me to go hunting. And I was like, this is a totally new concept. Mm -hmm. Never even occurred to me that th my family did this thing. He took me out duck hunting and you know, first he had kind of taken me through the process of shooting a gun and getting safe and, and getting acquainted with all of that. But then he took me hunting and we shot a few ducks and like the reverence he had for the whole system and explaining to me how there's seasons and this habitat has been set aside by hunters for hunting, but for the benefit of wildlife. And, and then he cooked it for me and it was amazing. And I mean, I was in like middle school and my first reaction was like, wow, I didn't even know this existed mm -hmm. in the world. And then my second emotion was like, I'm kind of mad at my parents for hiding this from mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Like, why didn't they tell me my uncle is like the coolest person in the whole yeah. world and he does this cool stuff? And after that, I was hooked. Uh, it started with waterfowl. You know, I hunted with him. I, I quickly started to gravitate towards friends in middle school and then high school who were into hunting. You know, first duck hunting because that's what I knew and I felt like I could kind of contribute and be a part of. And then you know, ultimately I found friends who duck hunted, but also deer hunted. Mm. So I was like, Hey, can I, you know, I know I don't know how to deer hunt. But can I go with you sometime? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that. And then I had a couple of friends let me, you know, shoot a deer on their property and learn how to process it, you know, and then I had this weird point in my life where I went to college. I, I really was focused on sports and I played baseball and, and swam in division one college, you know, NCAA environment and lived in a very, very ermid setting in downtown DC where it was illegal to have a firearm. Mm -hmm. And so for five years of my life outside of Thanksgiving and Christmas, I basically had to put hunting in a closet and kind of forget about it. And so when I finally graduated from grad school and moved out of DC and moved to Texas, it was like, I knew I had this passion that had been bottled up and I kind of was just waiting to unleash it. And, you know, as soon as I got here and I was kind of like in on my own power and employed and started to have, you know, time and energy and effort and you know, a passion for this thing. I just poured every moment into yeah. learning how to do it. Yeah. Went out west and watched, you know, how to field dress an animal on YouTube. And when I was like 22 years old, just started bow hunting, you know, because it just seemed like the ultimate achievement. Yes. I like mm -hmm. wanted to learn. Yeah. And I just started doing that. And I mean, to answer your question, that was long winded, but I like to hunt, you know, everything I like to eat is okay. what it comes down to. You know, if I like to eat it, I'm very interested in hunting it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I say my favorite type of hunting is bow hunting for big game in the Western U.S. Just because I think it combines athleticism and being in good shape and working out hard and doing things that are hard with the the sport and pursuit and passion for interacting with wildlife, mm -hmm. which is to me like the intersection of like the two things that I love the most. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And the passion thing, I'm sitting here and I can just see the smile and the glint in your eyes. You're talking about this, like that thing that just lights a person up. It's it's funny. You kind of had to shelve that when you went to college and then you're full send when you were out. And it reminded me, though, when you were speaking about that first experience, like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever with my uncle. I often think about especially for like young boys and men in the world, like we've lost our rite of passage almost. And I'm curious if like that moment felt like a coming of age in a way, like it awakened something primal in you. Is that, that's what I feel hunting is and that's what I want to experience. But I'm curious, having had that experience, if that is something that resonated with you. I think looking back now, yes. But I think that's like a, a much more mature perspective. On, right, right, right. Like at the time, I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever you know, been exposed yeah. to and biggest adventure. I think that's what it was, right? Like 
there's only so much adventure you can have in a suburban setting yeah in a true like outdoor sense mm -hmm. right and so you know going out where there's danger you know there's guns there's shooting there's an element of like i have to be safe you have to be safe we're looking out for each other you know that's exciting to a, mm -hmm. a young boy mm -hmm. and i think you know just all kind of combined for me of like this whole experience is i want to know everything about it mm -hmm. you know i want to know about and i remember sitting there in the blind with my uncle the first time and he's looking looking at ducks fly by that are 300 yards away you know, little specks in the sky. And he's like, oh, that's a pintail. Those mm. are widgeon over there. That's a mallard. Those are teal. Look at them. Look how they fly. I'm like, oh my goodness. How do you know? I only thought there was like one kind of duck. Yeah. Like it's the kind with the green head in a park that you throw bread to. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm like in sixth grade, so I'm like very naive. But I remember seeing his knowledge and mm -hmm. I was like, oh my goodness, there's a whole world here I didn't even know existed. Mm. An ancient world, right? Like it's like the stuff that if we're not careful, we, we could lose unless you have the elders and the mentors. Like one of my questions for you, and I'm sure a lot of people that are in this kind of um, on-ramp to thinking about sourcing well-raised meat and animal-based diets and supporting great companies like Force of Nature and is how, how, how do you start? Like how's a guy like me who doesn't have any connections right now, how do you start hunting in the right way? What's your advice to someone? As someone that's worked as a hunting guide, you know, I would say the best way to truly start if, if you can, I mean, there are a lot of different types of hunts that are different levels of affordable. I would say it's worth it to hire a guide, you know, just like if you were going to learn how to be a mechanic, mm -hmm. you know, and that was going to be your thing. You wouldn't just go, you know, tear your car no. apart and try and figure it out. Right. And I think there's a lot you can learn on YouTube and things like that. And those are great resources, but the human connection, right. Having somebody that can usher you through what's going on and, and give you the, the coolest thing about hunting is like learning about nature and all of the different nuances, yeah. right? Like it's not that you're going to kill a white-tailed deer. It's that you're going to hunt for a white-tailed deer in a live oak tree with a cardinal and a squirrel and a sunrise and all these other things that are going on around you that you're learning about. Mm. So that guide can kind of like guide you through that whole experience and help you be safe, right? Because mm. that's a part of it. It's a real part of it. You're, you know, dealing with, you know, nature and, and weather and firearms and all kinds of stuff. And it's overwhelming, honestly. Yeah. I think that's the thing I hear a lot from people who are looking to get into it is just yeah. how overwhelming it is. Yep. And hiring a guide just kind of breaks down those barriers, right? Even if you only hire a guide one time, you know, if you really want to get into waterfowl hunting or whatever it is to have someone take you out and show you the ropes. And it's like, oh man, can you just like point me in the right direction? Yeah. You know have you done this with people? Is this something you've done personally as well? Led them groups? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I've, I've, you know, guided professionally for pay and then also a huge passion for just sharing my passion with other people. Yeah. And so I've taken dozens of people on their first deer hunt. My friends, you know, people who see how much I care about it and like yourself just ask questions and are interested. I'm like, oh, hey man, like, would you want to shoot a doe on my place? Yeah. And I'll show you how to cut it up and where all the different you know, steak cuts come from and yeah. what, what you put in the grinder and you can take that home to your family. Yeah. That's like the most re rewarding part to me is sharing it. And I think getting back to your first question about hunting, having a marketing problem, like selfishly or just looking at it as a community or, or just caring about wildlife, like that marketing problem is a huge threat. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it's a huge threat to wildlife because if people don't care about wildlife, it won't exist in the future. You know, I think we are at this pivotal point in the history of humankind. Like we're at a crossroads, right? If we don't decide today that we want to leave space for nature, for, for wildlife, in a hundred years, we're not going to have that choice. Mm. It's all going to be gone. You know, we're developing the planet so quickly, whether it's through agriculture or urbanization uh, or just resource extraction, that if we don't intentionally set habitat aside, it won't exist in a hundred years. And I, in my opinion, the best way to get people to truly care and truly understand what wildlife needs is through hunting. Mm. And so it's almost like I'm trying to evangelize the whole system to people, not just hunting and procuring your own meat, but like, hey, you should care about this and I want you to know about it. So let me get you interested in it and then you can take it from there and mm -hmm. share it with other people.
Well, it's really interesting because I think that shatters maybe another misconception that I guess people that don't understand what you just said would think that hunters are all about the death and destruction. It just seems like they want they want the kill. They just want to kill everything. But you're saying this is actually hunters understand the conservation aspect more than anything else. Talk to me about that word conservation and land management and keeping the predator prey populations in balance and I would have no idea about that because I don't understand it. And I think hearing your perspective of why this is so important, because I agree with everything you said, and it's firing me up to learn this stuff now. But how how do you how do you just you, you know you tell these stories, we have these conversations, but how do you help people understand the magnitude of this? The city dwellers, the people in 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 you know these massive urbanized areas, that this is something that we should be propping up and celebrating, and encouraging people to learn about. Yeah, I think conservation is about sustainable use. Right. And so hunters understand that if you over harvest an area or a property, like you're not going to be able to have that harvest again the next year. Right? if you over deer hunt your ranch here in Texas, like deer just don't manufacture themselves. Right. right? They come from deer. And so they get that. And over the course of the years, I think you really start to understand and see that those cycles play out and the dynamic between us as human predators and the prey and, and also, you know, native predators. Um, but I think like to understand conf conservation, like you really have to understand like where we came from, right? Like, especially in this country, you know, kind of one of the last frontiers of the world in terms of civilization, um, you know, as recent as 200 years ago, we had 40 to 60 million bison walking around in North America and wow. millions of elk and millions of all of these species of animals, millions of er, hundreds of thousands of wolves for context what's the number now for like the bison for example Four hundred thousand. wow and most okay. of them are on private land in private herds raised as livestock hmm. and you know in the late 1870s early 1880s we had less than a thousand bison left in the world we market hunted nearly to extinction all of the native species of megafauna in north america market hunted what is that Hunting for the sale of a product from the animal. Okay. Uh, in the case of the bison, it was largely the bison hides that were sold to the East Coast market and European market for use on uh, machine belts. So hmm. rubber was very expensive and very hard to make. And they figured out a technology to basically tan bison hides much cheaper than they could make machine belts out of rubber. And so they started using the hides for rubber and that drove a market of you know, entrepreneurial type people hardened by the Civil War, trained in firearms to go out and you know market hunt nearly to extinction. Damn, it's it's incredibly sad, you know. And I think about those people, and well, I don't want to defend them ever because I think you can't be a part of killing hundreds of bison a day and just taking the skins off and doing it again day after day after day after day without knowing what you're doing. Right. I also think they just didn't have context of you know finiteness of right. resource. Right. Right. Like they always talked about like the return of the northern herd. It's like, no, you idiot. You killed them all. Mm. They're gone. You know, and I think, you know, making that connection to conservation, there were a few individuals, a lot of them actually, those market hunters, as as they saw the destruction themselves, that started to voice opinions like, hey, they're gone. Hey, like we should do something about it. There's a few hundred. I'm going to put some on my ranch mm. and try and keep them. So at least people can see them. You know, if they disappear from everywhere, I've got 12. Um, in the chase, case of Charles Goodnight in Texas, and one of the guys who saved kind of the last of the Southern Plains genetics for wow. bison. Um, but knowing that's where we came from, you know, in the early 1900s, people like Teddy Roosevelt and others started to realize, hey, we've got to create a system, right? If we want wildlife to exist in the future, we have to create a system to protect it. And because market hunting was the factor that almost drove a lot of the species to extinction, they created you know, ex intensive management programs for, for wildlife. And so it is no longer legal in the United States to hunt uh, an animal for the sale of its meat to the market. Mm. Um, so you can't market hunt. Mm. And you can only hunt for personal use. Uh, I can give you some right. of my elk, but I can't sell it to you. Right. I can't sell okay. it to a store. Right. Uh, and that coupled with, in, you know, making investments as a country in land to put aside, you know, national parks being first, national forests, uh, Bureau of Land Management, you know, all these land holdings basically being set aside for nature, you know, over the course of, of a century, we've recovered a lot of these species. Um, it's hard to imagine a world where white-tailed deer were, you know, not 
necessarily endangered, but in trouble. Mm. Right. And, you know, you look around central Texas, that's hard to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But that's through, you know, over a century of, of being thoughtful about how we harvest, right? Like you have to get a tag. You have to pay for the tag. You can only use the tag. Mm-hmm. The tag, the number of tags that are, you know, out there for public use are determined by what the ecosystem can support. And so in the case of a lot of the Western United States, there's a lot of like roughly county sized areas that are managed, you know, they're looking at a herd size within that county sized area and say, there's a thousand elk here. You know, the bull to cow ratio is, you know, whatever for easy conversation, you know, there's five cows for every one bull. And it's sustainable to have 10 cows for every one bull because one bull can breed, Mm -hmm. easily breed 10 cows. So Mm -hmm. we're going to allow for, you know, every group of 10 cows, we're going to harvest one bull. Okay. So we're going to put out for, if there's a thousand animals, my math is going to be off here, but let's just say we're going to put out 20 tags, Yeah. you know, and we know that the average harvest success rate is 20%. So we're actually going to put out a hundred tags. Gotcha. Right. right. Because if we put out a hundred, 20 people get one. Mm Mm-hmm. And there'll be plenty to breed. They'll reproduce next year, and we'll, you know, we'll have a sustainable use model, and that at scale is what the United States model of conservation is. And we couple that with these really integral acts that were passed in the early 1900s. Uh, Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson, where if you buy firearms, hunting equipment of any kind, ammunition, it's taxed heavily, mm-hmm. and that tax goes specifically to support conservation programs. Interesting. And Dingle Johnson, same thing with fishing. You buy fishing lures, fishing, you know, boat gas for wake surfing boats. Hmm. Here's a Dingle Johnson tax. Hmm. And that's supporting fisheries. And so, and those those programs were created by hunters. Yeah. They were created by people like Teddy Roosevelt, who, because they hunted and had a lifetime of experience engaging and interacting and caring about wildlife, they created these programs so that it would be there in the future. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. I didn't know that. And I don't think a lot of people would know that unless they understood the history. And I think you're right, you know, reflecting on those market hunters that just probably couldn't reconcile the that there is finite resources and they were just, you know, reacting to the the dollar price tags or whatever it was. And Be- just for the record, I don't want everyone to go on record as defending the market. No, hunters, right. But it's just such a different time in history. Yeah. Right. Like different knowledge of what we had available to us. Yeah. Yeah. Different knowledge, different problems. And I think it it's interesting where it puts us today because I'm curious how much of this pull back to hunting, encourage people to get out there and, and put a, a couple of animals per year in the freezer or whatever it is with kind of overlays with your other work with force of nature and companies that are trying to do regenerative agriculture. Because again, we tap into this where's the ceiling of finite resources and the way we're doing these massive cage animal feeding operations and the way we're unsustainably farming of plants as well for the you know the future of the vegans or whatever but there is a finite amount of resources right and if we don't manage them well collectively both in a hunting sense and in a commodity sense and in the supermarket sense that we could potentially run into problems and i feel like you understand this better than most is a solution here to try and get less people buying supermarket beef and hunting a little bit more where do these worlds collide how do you see this world of your passion for hunting and what you do with conservation and with force of nature where is it all coming like full circle yeah so i think as much as my passion is to to share hunting with as many people as possible so they can develop that appreciation love respect knowledge of wildlife and the connection to it that i have and understand it it's simply not possible for the population like there's not a wildlife population or a land mass available that everyone can go hunting and and provide their own food at this point in history right and so i think you know that being my passion i i also want to have high quality food available that's very important for me and i love animals i love bison i like cows uh and i think if we can have a system that most emulates a natural system but provides food for the masses, that's the best possible solution for making sure the grocery store shelves stay full. You know, making sure when you go to Hop Dotty to buy a burger, you can get one. Yeah. Right. And so we have to feed our population, but why why do we have to sacrifice those values to do it? You know, let's let animals express their natural behavior. You know, let them live the life they were put on this earth to live. 
but raise them intentionally for a food system, mm-hmm. right? And do that, with, leave space for nature, even on those ranches, right? Like at Force of Nature, one of the things I'm the most proud of that we do is, you know, one of our sourcing standards is leaving room for wildlife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what that means in practice is fencing your animals out of riparian areas, you know, places that are super sensitive, that are high use for wildlife, even non-hunted species, you know, birds, you know, songbirds, you know, let's leave areas of the ranch for those things, you know, let's leave, you know, sensitive water features, you know, untouched so that we can have clean water, clean aquifers. Um, We have a supply chain that supports all that. Mm. And I think if you're going to buy meat from the grocery store, but you can get those values, then you haven't sacrificed or lost that connection. Yeah. Yeah. That That's great. I think that's the, the world we all hope for. And we always encourage on this podcast, you know, vote with your dollar support companies that are doing it the right way. Cause ultimately that that's, that's the demand, right. And that's going to create the supply of hope and the incentives, uh, maybe in some ways are, are broken down. Cheaper is better, but we have to ask what the cost of that cheap is, you know, and all the inputs. And like you said, the health of the animal, um, I'm sure comparing a feedlot cow to something that you get out in nature is night and day in terms of its quality. Would you say that the, the healthiest protein, the healthiest meat that you can get is what you wild hunt? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you are what you eat is an old adage, right? And I think that goes beyond just quality in terms of like, you know, grams of protein and fat content and that kind of stuff. It's like, I want to eat a healthy animal that was happy. I want to eat a happy animal, Mm -hmm. right? Because I think there's something there. You know, I think there are hormones and, mm-hmm. and and indicators in that animal that we don't even understand yet. And I think if we can connect with that and consume that, it's going to affect us in a way that, you know, we don't yet understand. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that piece of it, the, the reverence and the respect. You've mentioned it a few times. Intentional. You see terms like sacred hunting, just really consciously connecting. It's not just about the kill. Rewinding back to an earlier part in our conversation, you said potentially <laughs> some of the problem here is people only see the picture and they don't realize that what that picture represents is potentially years of hard work and skill acquisition and that the picture of a person smiling over a dead animal to somebody that doesn't understand that just looks kind of weird. But to the person that's gone through that and that was a really kind of powerful and sacred moment, something again that awakens what I could argue made us human. It, it put us in the position to still be here today. What's it like to relive that every time you go out and take life or to, like you said, lead people and see them go from a normie lifestyle where they've never done that to actually doing it? How much of this respect and reverence part of it in taking the life is important to you in completing that circle of life and honoring what you eat? I think it's everything. You know, I think just respect and awareness of the ecosystem in those moments to me is the most important, whether I'm sharing that with someone for the first time or a friend I've hunted with for a lifetime or I'm by myself, just making sure you're acknowledging everything that's going on, the birds that are flying around, the bugs you see, the snakes, you know, the spiders, the things you don't want to see, um, just being present, right? Like it, I think it's important just to be still in life and we don't do that, mm-hmm. right? Like we're constantly caught up on our phones and, you know, in the, the rush, hustle and bustle of careers and families. And like hunting to me is like that chance to be still, mm-hmm. right? It's just to be present and watch the sun come up. You know, I took, I had a, uh, a college um, teammate on the swim team that came home with me for, for Thanksgiving one year and we went, I took him deer hunting. And the thing that he said to me when we left that night stayed with me forever he he told me that never in his life had he watched the sun come up and the sun go down in the same day Mm -hmm. and been outside for all of the day Mm -hmm. and he he said it in such a way that it was just so profound Mm -hmm. like how have we come that far that we've lost that connection so i think that's part of it and then you know when you do kill an animal like just taking the moment to have reverence right to say thank you i think for me that's like all the way through in the care of cooking and preparing it and sharing it with people. But even in the moment, you know, it's like, I I try not to just go take the picture. You know, I try to first go over and like, just put my hand on that animal and say, thank you, you know, and just take a moment and be thankful, you know, for the world and the system and the God and the the whole universe that put that animal there. Right. And then if you want to take a picture, you know, back to that marketing problem, right? Like we have to have awareness as humans that what we do in today's age is public, mm-hmm. right? Especially if you're going to post the picture. Mm-hmm. 
And so like, if that's the way you truly feel about it, like the smiling picture is great to send to your buddies, right? But like, if you truly care that much, like just be thoughtful and like take a picture that demonstrates what you feel because that that's super important to me, right? Like if I'm going to post the picture, I'm going to post the one that I was intentional about, mm. you know? So I'm like outwardly showing to people who don't even read the caption, right? Who don't even care about it. Who may just scroll past it real quick. Like, oh, that guy's like, it's different, right? Like he's, it seems different than these other photos I've seen before. And I get, that's where the questions start. Yes, right. Then you start to have these conversations. Yeah, right? yeah. I heard um, Cam Haynes say that he he learned the hard way at first. It was always just, you know, these big bulls that he'd taken down. And he learned to start putting the, the kind of kill picture at the end of like a carousel of pictures that documented just how challenging that process is. Like, I, I want to come back to this point about fitness and the importance in hunting. Like, he always talks about the reason he wants to be fit is he wants to be able to go where other people can't go. And he wants to be able to honor that animal and give it a merciful death, which means he's not blown out of his ass because he just climbed a mountain and he can't make a clean shot. But he'd show all of that first, the sacrifice, the preparation, the countless amounts of arrows that he shot in practice, and then the kill instead of just that, which loses the context. Um but I do want you to touch on this this moment that you said, like this pause of gratitude for life, the hand on the animal, the thank you for offering your life to feed us. And recently you were in town for your um, Rome Ranch kind of professional development with the team. And there was a team bison harvest. And we spoke to Taylor about this when we had him on the show. But I'd love you to tell the story about what that's like to share with with a team of people that you, you know, you're growing with this business with. What does that mean? What was that lesson like? What's what's the bison harvest all about? Yeah. The bison harvest is exactly, and to all the credit to Taylor and Katie at Rome Ranch for putting this on, you know, Rome Ranch is a part of our supply chain that we're very proud of at Force of Nature, but they've very intentionally created these, these harvests to share with the community, right? To take people on that experience, to see firsthand that it takes death to, to support life. And a lot of the people that come out have never seen an animal die. So they they're completely disconnected from that process and they do it in such a intentional way that they really lead people through that and help them understand and have reverence for it and then look to support supply chains that are like that. And so, you know, we had our force of nature company retreat here, uh, this week and we did exactly that. We went to Rome ranch and we harvested a bison, uh, as a team. And I, I think the coolest moment, you know, I think Taylor actually said it at dinner that night as we actually were consuming the flesh of that animal as a team, you know, we all took a moment there and, and, and actually suggested it because I always do this when I hunt. And I was like, hey, I just really want to do this because we are all here because we support a supply chain that does this every day. Mm. It may look a little bit different, but this is what is happening every day to do what we do professionally to, you know, put food on the table mm. for our families. And so I want to like sit down and like take that photo and have that moment like with reverence. So we all like kind of gathered in like a half moon and, and then it became a, a full circle because there were there's 30, 30 of us on the team now and it got tight, like shoulder to shoulder, people kind of reaching under and around people all around this animal that we had just harvested in the spot where it had died, you know, very kind of heavy moment, right? Especially for people within the group had never seen this before. And we all put our anim uh, hands on the animal, kind of just dug into the fur and felt it and then had like a moment of silence. And it was cold. I, you know, you were here on Tuesday, I bet. Mm -hmm. It was cold and windy for Central Texas. And we were all really, really cold. You know, it's eight in the morning. But in that moment, like everyone was warm. And it felt like everyone's like spirits had kind of been like lifted. There was like a heaviness there, but it was like, it was gratitude. Mm -hmm. It was respect. And it was like, it was a connection with our team I'd never felt before. And I think everyone at our company dinner that night was like, I felt it too. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was, but I felt it. And that was cool. Like that, like for what we do as a company that like brought it full circle to me. And I think there were tears, there were smiles, there was every emotion you can imagine going on within that group. Yeah. Those ineffable experiences where everybody felt it and no one can quite find the words. They're really cool. And they're very profound. Sometimes I call them the God nod, you know, you just kind of get a little, ah, that's, that's what it's all about. We don't even need to try and 
you know, put words to it because we can in some ways. It truly Man, is I love that. The God nod. The God nod. <laughs> I'm going to use that. You can, you can have that one. All man. the credit to you for that. But man, I like that. I definitely stole it from somebody else. I just can't remember. <laughs> so I'll take the credit. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's like bigger than you, right? It's like bigger. That's what you. it's getting it's at. It's absolutely that. And I think this act of hunting, why I'm drawn into it. I've, I have a little homestead for context and I have a few animals and chickens and, and goats. And I've had to take some life on that. And it's just a very interesting moment. And it's just, it reminds us of so much. And there's, there's just like a deep connection um, and a deep, a, a very different relationship to all the food you consume thereafter. It changes you, it changes you as a person. And that's why I'm super passionate about talking to people that are passionate about this. And, and I wanna get into it and I wanna keep having these conversations to just give people pause to think, like you said, when they do see this, at least it can start questions, right? When, when you do this and you do it in this way, it gives people the permission slip to say like, why not me? Why can't I do that? Oh yeah, this does matter. And I think that what you're doing in your own personal way with hunting and everything that you guys are doing with force of nature is really profound and important in that sense, which is why we want to have these conversations, you know? Absolutely. Talk to me about this fitness piece in it. Um, you know, you're into fitness. We spoke a little bit off air about, you know, you like to get after some CrossFit style workouts and things like that. How, how important is fitness to your own personal philosophy? You're a father, you want to be a rad dad, but how important is it to the hunting story too? It's obviously not the, the fat white dude with a 12 pack of cores light. You're, you're, you're fit, you're healthy. Why does that matter? And why is that the misconception so much for hunters? Just gives you, well, for me, it's just, it just gives me more opportunity right? Like if I'm fit, if I can hike, if I can carry weight, if I can sleep on the ground and be comfortable, I can go places, not necessarily like go farther than other people. Cause not, I don't necessarily think that's always the best strategy to be successful, but I have the, that capability if yeah. I want to. And I think it just, I don't know. I used to work at a gym that had a motto of stronger, faster, harder to kill. Mm. Right. And I think that like, I, that kind of landed on me of like, I just want to kind of be a badass, right? Kind of like, like the animals you're hunting, right? That's what they're trying to yeah, do. Yeah, you got to match their energy yeah, a little bit, it. right? Like if I'm going to try and take down a, you know, an elk in a, in the peak rut and it's peak physical condition and it's running around and I've got a, you know, a stick and string I'm trying to chase it around with, like if I can't keep up, my chances of success are lower, mm -hmm. you know? And ultimately it's not going to be as enjoyable if I'm huffing and puffing. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm in that moment and I'm all in, I'm like 100% focused on what the animal's doing, what all the animals around it are doing, how I'm going to call, how I'm going to position myself. And that's all I'm thinking about. I have a chance to be successful. Mm -hmm. It's still low because it's hard, right? Mm -hmm. Even the best hunters are going to blow that situation or have it blown on them for no fault of their own because it's a wild animal, unpredictable. But if I'm in peak physical condition, I have a better chance, Love right? That. I'm not thinking about huffing and puffing. Yeah, I'm not thinking that thing just ran up a hill. I'm not going to be able to keep up. It doesn't even cross my mind. I just go. Excellent. Yeah. Right. And so that's the experience that I'm chasing. It's, it's also like, I'm a sucker for a good suffer fest. Mm -hmm. Like there's something about it. Like if you've been an athlete, like, mm -hmm. you know, there's kind of a high there, right? Like there's kind of like that flow state of just like, you're into it. It's almost like you black out and the rest of the world is, is gone and you're just, you're getting after it. And getting back to like being still, right? Like, although it is the opposite of truly being still in the, like the, the real sense of the word, like you're, you're being still in that you're leaving the rest of the world that's out right. and focusing on one thing. And that's part of the hunting pursuit that is so exciting and interesting to me is trying to block everything out and just being laser focused. Yeah. And the fitness is is critical in that, right? Yeah, absolutely, man. It's it's very well said. How how do you go about doing that from from your actual fitness <laughs> and your practices, how you train? Also to your diet, I'm really curious as a guy that obviously procures a lot of wild game, like how much of your diet is eating what you've hunted versus like what you get in from, you know, force of nature and things like that. What's your kind of day-to-day -day routine look like with fitness and food? Yeah, fitness, you know, I was a college athlete, you know, swimming, I think probably did more for my fitness level and just my ability to, to make it hurt and get comfortable with that than anything else I ever did in life. And, you know, I think I found CrossFit soon after college and it really called to me because of the group element of mm -hmm. it, right? Yeah. Like as a college athlete, you go to practice, a coach tells you what to do. Yeah. There's a, there's a structure and a time and you don't really think you just execute. And that's what appealed to me in CrossFit. Like you show up for an hour, it's going to hurt and an hour it's going to be over. And there's a group of people there that are gonna, you know, hold you accountable, yep. be competitive, and you just you're there to execute. Yeah. 
And I like that. Yeah. And so I, I've kind of adopted that style of training a lot. And I still swim a decent amount, especially in the summertime, because um, I like it. And I think it it helps in a lot of ways that's, that other sports kind of break you down. You know, I think it's helped me in, in even just like indicator ways, like blood pressure and things mm -hmm. like that, because it's, it's, it's easy on your body in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that CrossFit sometimes can be hard. It can. And that coupling of those two activities has been really, really good for me over the years. Um, from a diet perspective, and by the way, my wife is a total badass. Yeah, she's a gangster too. Yeah, I mean, she was a, a top 10 in the country college swimmer for a long oh, no time, way. and then even post-college, and she holds me accountable. There you and go. that's one of the things yeah. that appealed to me was that you know workout relationship yeah. with her. But yeah, on the food side of things, you know, I don't think we've bought meat from the store as a family in eight or nine years now. Wow. Uh, almost all of it is um, stuff that I've hunted. I say almost because we do buy fish. Uh, and occasionally, right. I hate to admit it, we do buy chicken. Right. Um, just because it's, you know, white meat that I don't have access yeah. to uh, otherwise. Uh, but in terms of red meat, it's been exclusively stuff that I've hunted for that long. That's amazing. And it's a huge part of what drives me is feeding my family and sharing that with my kids and having them from a young age. You know, both of my daughters, you know, their first meets were wild game. Like one cool. of them had duck and one of them had elk. Um, and so it's it just, it, it's all connected. Yeah. Right. And the passion for one is not different than the other. To me, it's all kind of the same. It's life, right? Yeah. It's just connection to what it means to be human for me. Yeah. That's very cool, man. Very, very cool. I don't know if you've kept count on how many hunts you have. For reference, have you? Do you know? Like, I've been on hundreds, thousands. Like, no what, no? Okay. Yeah. But I, I don't even curious. know where to draw the line between one yeah. and the other. I'm very curious what your craziest hunting story is. Craziest hunting story. In terms of, like, achievement I'm the most proud of or just, like, thing that would kind of be like, whoa, that was nuts? Either or. Whatever you feel compelled to share. Gnarliest, craziest, most, like, close call, whatever. I'll go like gnarliest. Um, Let's go gnarly. If actually, I was just talking about it with some friends over a hunt this morning, but um, was, I would say it was like the most successful hunt I've ever been on. Um, I was hunting in the West. I had an elk tag. Um, I was bow hunting, and killing in an elk with a bow on public land is a lifetime achievement. Mm -hmm. I really believe that, mm -hmm. you know. And there's a lot of people that do it year after year, and those people are elite. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it takes five, 10 years of going mm. to achieve that for the first time. And it's hard. And a lot of people never get there because they, they give up or they, they get into their career, their family life. And it just becomes unattainable to put that much time in. Um, but this is probably three years ago. And I, I went on a hunt. I achieved that for the first time. I, I killed a public land bowl with my bow. Um, it was a beautiful bowl, just incredible setting. You know, I, I called him out of an entire herd. I'd had many chances, close calls, missed shots, things like this over years in the past. And this time it just all mm -hmm. connected. Um, and the crazy thing about that hunt is I, this was my second time going to this area and I felt so good. Like I was so close after the first year, the second year it happened on the first morning, mm. literally the first morning of the season, like. 30 minutes in. Oh, wow. I just like, I knew where I wanted to go. I had a really good feeling that those elk were going to be there. I had a local guy I'd kept in touch with who ran the pack station and horse station there. And I, I met up with him when I got there. And he was like, yeah, they're in there. Yeah. There's a big one. I bet you can get them. And like, that was like the culmination of years and years and years. And for a long time, you know, I'd, I'd done pronghorn hunting, antelope hunting, so I could do mule deer hunting. And then to me, it was like always about like the progression, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't think I could get into elk hunting when I was in high school or even in college or after college. I was like, I had to work up to it in my mind. And that was the goal for so long, right? Like there's so many people I meet who think like, oh, I'm going to get into hunting. I'm going to go elk hunting with my bow. Yeah, just done like that, right? <laughs> and while that's like super cool and like it's like, like you're just going after the finish line without starting at the starting line, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like there's that journey there. And and like for me to achieve that was crazy. But then the crazy part of that story is so I, I shot this elk on the first morning. I'm talking to my buddy who runs this pack station, you know, that night. And he's like, Well, you're gonna be here for a week. Do you have a bear tag? 
And I was like, I didn't even know you could get a bear tag. What's mm. the deal with that? He's like, well, in this area, there's a lot of bears and they don't restrict the tags because they're trying to pull the population down. They, they feel like they're overpopulated and they're 15 bucks. Mm. I was like, really? So I got a bear tag and I was with a friend and he still had his elk tag. So I was like, great. Like I was planning to go with him for the rest of the week right. and help, you know, kind of call for him and be with him anyways. Like, this is cool. I still can carry my bow. Like, you know, I'm not going to be too intentional about this, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to have a tag. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're out, you know, in the middle of this mountain range, middle of the wilderness area, five days later, trying to get him an elk. And we split up on this morning and because we weren't finding elk, you know, it was like, okay, you go over there. I'll go over here. If I see one, I'll, you know, we'll talk about it at lunch and we'll, I'll bring you to where I found him. But I'm walking down a trail trying to follow a bugle. I heard way off in the distance and I come around and there's a giant black bear sitting there in a blueberry patch in the middle no of the way. mountains at like 70 yards I'm like oh my goodness i have a bear tag i have a bow like this moment never occurred to me like I, i've never thought about bear hunting um and to make a long story really short like the, the crazy part of the story is i ended up creeping in on this bear i shot him i put an arrow in him i felt like it was a really good shot he ran off down the mountain i did the thing where you're supposed to do as a good bow hunter is wait an hour before you even start to look Mm. Why is that? Why are you supposed to wait? Well, you know, an, an arrow delivers a lot less kinetic energy than a bullet. Okay. Right? Like you're trying to poke somebody with a, a blade versus, you know, hitting them with a bullet that yeah. impacts with the force of a truck. Right? So you don't get that like percussion mm -hmm. destruction that you get with a bullet. Mm -hmm. It's just that you have to hit something vital with a stick, mm -hmm. basically. And so it's just good to wait. And if there's any chance they're still alive, that you're just trying to avoid pressuring them and having them run on adrenaline gotcha yeah so you want to be able to recover right that's like an ethical hunter so you wait an hour and you just give them a chance to expire and unfortunately in this instance you know the bear you know i waited an hour i went to look you know blood trail was really good i started to get close and he was still alive mm. and you know i could tell he was still alive because i was going down the hill and i started to hear all this fumbling in the brush I'm like, my heart's sinking. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I've wounded a bear. Not only did I ever never think I was going to be a bear hunter, now I'm a, a wounding a bear hunter. Mm. And so I come around in these trees and, you know, again, trying to make a long story short here, ended up actually being able to put another shot on this bear. Um, and so I shot it again and just out of just an amazing feat of an animal's will to live, you know, this bear that was, you know, on the verge of life and death was hit again vitally and ran 30 feet up a Douglas fir tree. Damn. And at this point, I'm just panicking. Mm -hmm. You know, my heart is through my feet, just upset with myself mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, deal with this situation and finish this animal ethically. And now he's 30 feet up in a tree. And so <laughs> I run over and I, I've, I've got another arrow. I'm, I'm pulled back. I'm trying to find this bear in this tree. And I finally feel like I've got it. And I'm about to let go. And then all of a sudden, this bear just free falls out of the tree. Wow. To the point that I'm like standing directly underneath it and have to jump back and like draw down on my bow. <sighs> and it lands like from me to you and just looks me in the eye and just gives me this like death roar. <sighs> and just expires. And wow. I'm, I'm completely by myself. Like only an hour and a half into this whole idea of like being hunting a bear. Right, like just I'd never seen myself in this situation, and here I am, having just had this experience. I remember just I couldn't even go touch the animal for mm -hmm. like thirty minutes. I had to like take a walk, mm -hmm. you know, and just like you know, took my hat off. I was took my half my clothes off, and like what just happened? Yeah, that and, is uh, wild, man. Yeah, that is so cool. I have like goosebumps as I'm visioning like a burr falling from the tree and just landing there and just thinking of all of that and the 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 roller coaster you must have been on again. That's what I've heard from people who hunt. The the one thing they want more than anything else is the merciful kill, right? The the quick kill. And I guess you're going through this conundrum in your head of like, oh, was that a bad shot and all of this stuff, and to finally have it close and come full circle. Just a beast of an animal with a strong will to live, but to see it like kind of expire and give you the raw, the nod on the way out, like, all right, you won this one, dude. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of crazy. It was crazy. And I mean, we were 
seven, eight miles into the wilderness. And, you know, it took my buddy and I the next 12 hours to pack that bear out to the... Yeah. What's that like? The packing out, I've heard some people say, you know, obviously you got to, you get the kill, but then what do you do with it? You're packing out and sometimes you're deep in these ravines and things like that. That must be pretty intense, no? It is. But honestly, like that is my favorite part. Okay. Like not only like, have you been successful, but like the pressure's off, like the animal's not suffering you've harvested, you know, the bounty that you hoped for. And hopefully like, I love sharing that with people because it's just like, you have a reverence, but you're just happy and you're so present, right? Like you're literally carrying the weight of a sentient being that you just killed, which like talk about connection to your food system, right? Like putting half of the weight of that bear on my back and then walking up and then down a mountain, eight miles, you know, getting back to the trailhead at like two in the morning. Like you just feel different after yeah. that. Like, and you know, you have those experiences and you don't want to see, uh, you know, a thumb sized piece of meat go to waste after one, you yeah. put that much effort in, but two, you've been that close to the animal and, and know what it cost to get that. Right. Not only me, but that animal, it caught, it paid the ultimate price, but the pack out itself is like, talk about a suffer fest. You know, that's like, <laughs> it's just a suffer fest. That's all it is. Right. And it's like, how hard do you and your buddy want to push it? Yeah. You know, and if you're alone, like even better, like let's just go and like, you know, go to that dark place and just keep going and going and going and make it hurt. Damn. Be smart, right? Like, especially if you're by yourself, you don't yeah. want to fall and break your leg. Yeah. And, you know, then be in a, you know, life, life threatening situation. But yeah, I mean, that to me is the most rewarding part of hunting to the point that I'll tell people, you know, I live in Oregon now where there's a lot of public land and mountains close by and friends that hunt. And I'm like, during hunting season, my boots and my backpack are by the door. Yeah. Give you me know? a call. Like, please. Yeah. Like, and they don't believe me. They're like, really? I'm like, I love that part, man. Yeah, that is right. the best. Like, and that's how you make friendships that are so deep. Like my buddies that have packed out animals with me, or I've helped them pack out one of theirs animals, the conversations about life that you have and like being in that together, it's like you're in the trenches with that guy yeah. or that gal. Yeah. Right. And you just talk about life. You talk about death. You talk about, man, just existence. Like, mm -hmm. what does it mean to be here? Like the mm -hmm. human experience, like we're in it, like we're feeling it, talking about it. It's crazy. Like you just, those are like brothers, you know? That's it. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, men in particular, we really do bond to a different level when we've overcome something together. Like we've, we've, you know, gone through this, we've, we've suffered together. And it sounds like you really enjoy sharing hunting with people. I'm sure there's a, a profundity of the solo adventures too, but I must ask you this question because I feel like it's a fun one. If you're sharing a hunt and you could have like a three person hunting dream team, anybody in the world, who are you taking hunting with you? Nobody's off the table. Nobody's off the table. Nobody's off the table. You take whoever you want on this hunt. Oh man, it's like hard to leave my buddies behind and like go with like the celebrity. Hunt. Yeah, right. Are you taking like are you taking Rogan? Like, what's going on here? I think number one, I'm taking my cousin. Okay, my cousin Solid. Davis is like, you know, I have a brother and and one cousin. Uh, and while my brother likes to hunt, my cousin loves to hunt, mm -hmm. and he and I have shared in a lot of hunts together. And he's like, he's equally yoked in his passions, and he cares about the whole experience in the same way I do. And so like in some ways, every time I have an experience without him, I feel bad, you know? And so I think if there's three people I get to take, he's one of them. So yeah. that cuts it to two. I think, uh, and I actually fulfilled this one. I got to hunt with him last year and he exceeded my own expectations for what hunting and being with him in a hunting situation was like, but Remy Warren. Okay. Yeah. Um, he is just like, if I had to say like, who's the best hunter uh, to me, Remy Warren's like, he's got to be at least at the top of the list. Yeah. And not only that, he's the most humble guy and just like, you want to enjoy the experience with that person. And, it, you know, I got everything I hope for uh, you know, with him and seeing the way he hunts and has appreciation for it and shares it with people and just goes about it. And I think he is the best hunter. Yeah. That's so cool. like, I want to watch him like, it's like, well, how would you do this? Yeah. You know, like, let me see it. Show me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And number three, Oh, I don't know, man. Like that kind of goes back to like, who would I want to share it with? Who would, like, it would be cool because they're a celebrity or whatever. Like they're somebody and maybe they'll share it. Maybe. And Joe Rogan's already there, right? Like he's already like a huge evangelist for the sport. Huge, so as dude. cool as it would be to hunt with him, maybe it's someone that's like interested and has like a similar platform 
and I'd enjoy hanging out with. Yeah. I'm trying to think of who that would be and I can't right now, but I yeah. think that's like the, how I would think about. Did you see um, Zuckerberg is, is on the, is on the, like the meat train now. He's like opening a ranch and doing like crazy sustainable agriculture out in Hawaii. So you could take. So someone, yeah, that's someone like that would be perfect. You get Zuckerberg in there. Or, or, um, Mr. Tesla, Elon, Elon might be a yeah. cool in. He's bring his, you know, his Asperger's mind to it and probably figure out how to do it with the robots but it's not <laughs> what we want to do here you know <laughs> yeah. now, this is kind of like an old world tradition we're trying to celebrate yeah speaking of the celebrities in the space that have obviously done a lot for the exposure to hunting guys like rogan have talked about it a lot on his podcast and cam what's your opinion on those guys and their net um impact on the awareness of hunting and what they're doing for the sport i think overall a lot of them are doing a lot of good things. I think, you know, we're having this conversation because those types of people are sparking interest probably in people like yourself to yeah. explore it, right? And I think for that reason, I'm hugely supportive and hugely a fan. You know, I think I look up to the way Stephen Ranella talks a lot about yeah. conservation. Love I think he's so well articulated about it that I think I've learned a lot just from listening to him talk about it and give him some credit there. Um, I think one thing that's hard though is get it gets back to that like marketing problem. Right. So like when people like I have a ton of respect for Cam Haynes. I'd love to hang out with Cam Haynes. I'm a fellow Oregon guy now. Yeah. You know, new. I, I feel like I, I don't I can't even claim that yet. I've yeah. only lived there like four months. But uh, you know, I think one of the challenges I see with them though is like they they have that the they're posting that picture a lot. Yeah. You know, and so it's like, how do you kind of reconcile with like when is it a passion and a way that you feed your family and when does it become like a job? Mm. Because for me, like, although I worked as a guide, I was trying to help other people procure it. It wasn't always for me. And I feel like, I don't know. I don't, and that's more of a challenge to those guys. It's like, well, how, how do you keep it from becoming a job? Because I don't think hunting for, for killing for yourself should ever really become a job. Like yeah. we, we did that, right? Like as a society, you know, 1800s America did that. Didn't work. Yeah. You know, and so we got to be careful, not that we're market hunting again, but it's a finite resource with a lot of interest. Yeah, right. I think comparing it to the like the European model, right? It's a very exclusive experience in Europe because yeah. it's private land, costs money. Usually the the very upper elite class can participate or have access to. And we're lucky in this country in that we have tons of public land and mm. we have these systems where people can get a tag for almost anything if they really, you know, learn about it and learn how to you know, put in for the tags and apply and all that stuff and have some luck. But I, I don't like it when I see people overusing the resource. Yeah. Right? And people might look at my page and accuse me of that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe I have to think about that and be critical of myself. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, like if you're harvesting an animal and you're, you're respecting it and having reverence and making sure the, the meat and the protein from that animal is used, yeah. Whether that's yourself or you're intentionally sharing it with your community, then I can get on board. Yeah. And ultimately the way conservation is in this country, like, you know, I, I generally trust the way it's being managed where they're managing to have the right amount of animals in the future. You know, they're not trying to eliminate them or reduce them to the point it's not sustainable. And so if they're getting tags, it's because there's opportunity. Yeah. And, and I support that. Yeah. Even cool. for animals that I don't necessarily have a personal interest in hunting, I support it because it's that model that's worked. Mm. It's conservation, right? Mm. This is cool, man. It's a very fun conversation. I've, I've learned a lot about um, more of the context around hunting that I didn't previously know. And this fire has been building inside me for a while and it's uh, it's bigger now. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said overwhelmed before of what new hunters feel. That's exactly where I've been. It's like, what do I get now to buy this? And is it this or is it that? And I think what I really have to do is I'm in rural Tennessee. There's a lot of guys out there that hunt. There's a lot of guys through the CrossFit gym. We mentioned Rich Froninoff. Uh, he's he's hunting now. There's a bunch of people at Mayhem that do. I got to reach out to those guys and get in. And uh, this was really inspiring. And I hope it's encouraged people to look at it, think about it in in the right kind of way. So I appreciate your time today and coming on and telling this story. And uh, the passion, the passion that you have for hunting is palpable. And I think that's what people need to hear. So where can people go to, you know, learn a little bit more about this or, or keep up with you and, and also what you're doing, you know, uh, force of nature and all of that stuff. What, what, where can people go and continue to support not just hunting, but voting with the dollar, good companies like this. 
Well, voting with your dollars is hugely important, right? Support companies like Force of Nature that are doing it right and leaving space intentionally for wildlife and supporting ecosystems, right? And really learn about that and dig in. Don't just read the headlines and don't buy into the narrative without asking questions, right? And I think that's an important philosophy across a lot of areas in society, not just food or hunting or meat. Yeah. Um, but I think when you're voting with your dollars for food, that's super important. You know, I think in terms of where people can find me, I'm terrible at social media. <laughs> I mean, the only thing I share on social media is hunting. I get really excited about sharing that story. And so if you just followed me on Instagram, you'd think the only thing I do is hunt. And yeah. I don't do it that often <laughs> relative to, you know, days, you know, of the week, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I like to put out well-thought-out stories and content, take good pictures and get people inspired. And if there's anything to leave kind of today, it's like I'm pumped that you're like inspired by this conversation. Yeah. And I hope more people can be inspired to learn about animals and just have a curiosity, not for, for the deer you want to hunt, but like the whole ecosystem. Just pay attention and learn and ask questions and get a bird book, man. Get a Get a tree book, you know, learn about what trees are out there and what... What are the the problems facing those trees and mm -hmm. what can you do to help and mm -hmm. participate, right? Like, don't be a spectator. Love that. Participate. And there's tons of good, good organizations in this country, nonprofits that are doing awesome work. You know, American Prairie Reserve, I think, is a really cool project that shouldn't be controversial. You know, there's things like Ducks, organizations like Ducks Unlimited and Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and Trout Unlimited that are doing really cool work. Like I said, I just kind of final thought, like I feel like we are at that why in the road, right? Where if we are not intentional about leaving space for wildlife today, we're not gonna have it for our grandkids and their kids in a hundred years. And the chance will have passed. They'll look back and say, hey, there's this thing called a salmon. Mm. Let me show you a picture of what it looked like. It was cool. And that like almost brings me to tears, Yeah, right? Like we have that opportunity to keep that from happening today, but it's fading. Mm. We have to be inspired to participate and to protect and really conserve, right? Sustainable use is what keeps people engaged and, and keeps it at the forefront for people for generations to come. Super powerful, man. Thank you very much. And yeah, that participatory act in it is is very important. Like reminds me of closing the loop here of your friend that you took hunting where he was like, I spent the whole day outside, watch the sun come up, watch the sun go down. Just go remember, go remember, go be out in nature, go participate. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your words. This was a fun one. Uh, fam, I hope you're inspired to go check it out. So we'll see you next time on the show. Peace out, brother. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, friends. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Radical Health Radio. We got a fresh new podcast for you every Wednesday. If you enjoyed the show, consider liking, subscribing, reviewing, and rating us on your podcast platform. It helps to spread this message of Radical Health. We'll see you next week.